0: If you will, to Nehemiah chapter 8. I'm just going to get on it this morning. Title of this message is Bring the Book. And we'll be discussing 12 keys to scriptural discipleship. Before diving into Nehemiah chapter 8, as as you're turning there, I think it best to to point out our our need for biblical discipleship. Now I could take you and I invite you actually to take the time to to go into Barna's research as he pulls Christians and see the the vast amounts of of just ignorance of, of basic biblical doctrines or maybe hitting closer to home As a school teacher of seventh graders, I polled my class. A fair representation of churches in the area, many of them going to churches every Sunday. 67% of them believed that unbelief was not a sin. 0% of them could clearly articulate the gospel. And what I mean by that, they did not mention both the death and the resurrection of Christ, the two basic components. And very few of them had any true assurance of salvation, clinging to some righteous work or prayer that they did, rather than the evidence found in a scriptural basis, such as 1 John. I think that's a fair assessment uh, of those 7th graders, points to the fact that um, they get that from somewhere. It isn't by accident that they are so unaware. I think it flows downstream from their parents and from the churches in this area. We stand on the truth, but even here at RHC, we have a great need to be discipled and be disciplers in a biblical sense. Well, why? And I want the I wanna kinda like what Paul did in, in uh, Romans chapters one two three. I wanna show us our need, our responsibility. I, I, I wanna leave us all in a sense, hopefully, from the Word of God, that, that there is no loophole that we can get out of or any escape. There is none. I address you, elders, and I address myself as an elder. We have the responsibility, according to First Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, we are required to be able to teach from Scripture well. Parents, you should know the verse well. If you are a parent, either of a young child or even of older children, According to Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four through nine, you are instructed and required, commanded by God himself to teach your children always. Husbands, you are required to sanctify your wife with scripture to teach her according to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 26. And in case you're not an elder, you're not a parent, you're not a husband, all believers, according to Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20, are commanded to go and make disciples of all the nations. And you know the verse, baptizing them in in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that God has commanded you. This can be practically seen in 2 Timothy chapter two, verse two, where men are required, commanded by God to teach other men who are then to teach other men after them. And women, in Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5, older women are required by God to teach younger women so that the word of God may not be reviled. We can't escape. There is such an emphasis on teaching in discipleship. And going back to what I said earlier, The church has largely failed at this. We have failed. I have failed. None of us here know scripture as we ought. None of us here truly treasures the word of God as we ought. All of us at times are lazy and listless and we don't pour into others scriptural truth we take a day or an afternoon off. This brings us to our text for this morning. Nehemiah chapter eight, verses one through 12. I think it's appropriate for the text that we rise in reading the word of God. This is the word of the sovereign Lord. Nehemiah 8, beginning in verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, facing the square before the water gate from early morning till midday, in the presence of men and the women and those who could understand and all the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose, and beside him said, stood Mattathiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, Messiah, on his right hand, and Padiah, Mishael, Malchijah, Ashum, Ashbadana. Zechariah and Mishulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above the people. And as he opened it, all the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen. Lifting up their hands, and they bowed their heads and worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Yeshua, Benai, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatiah, Hodiah, Messiah, Galita, Azariah, Jezebad, Hanan, Peliah. The Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book the law of God clearly and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and all the Levites who taught the people said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat of the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready for this day is holy to our Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed the people saying, be quiet for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make a great rejoicing Because, because they understood the words that were declared to them. Father, open our mind this morning to behold the wonders of your word. Unite our hearts to you, O Lord. May we prize this book more than our very lives. May that be shown in our actions and our thoughts. And all that we do to honor you. In your name, amen. May be seated. The background of Nehemiah here is circa about 445 BC in Jerusalem. After 70 years of captivity, the Israelites, some 14 years earlier, had come back into the city, it was in ruin. And first of all, Zerubbabel led the Israelites to rebuild the temple. And yet, through great uh, adversity, that was accomplished. Nehemiah later led the Israelites to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in an astonishing 52 days. Yet, despite all these blessings, back in the promised land, a place to worship and even safety for their families in in having a wall to protect them from their numerous enemies, the Israelites were still lacking. No building project could do what was truly needed. It was now time to build up their souls with the word of God. Let us look how Ezra did it. How by God's grace through the scriptures, he spiritually built up God's people. And that is our challenge here. That is our challenge every day of our life. Will we today be more conformed to the image of Christ? Today we will look and ultimately be taught by God in his word 12 key aspects of true biblical discipleship. 12 key aspects of true biblical discipleship. Number one, and this is very elementary. The teacher must first be taught. The teacher must first be taught. Look in verse one, it's very clear. Notice what Ezra is described as, Ezra the scribe. In verse two he's described as a priest. Ezra himself knew the scriptures well. And in fact, that's what God is calling us to do. We are to know scripture better than any other subject. As a school teacher, I love knowledge. Yet I I, kind of have to say this, I I don't think that we're going to be doing long division in heaven. Amen. We're not. Yet the word of the Lord endures forever. We should be so at home and with scripture. In fact, we are commanded to let the words of Christ dwell in us richly as a one who is seeking to disciple, how can the teacher bring his students to a place where he has not been himself? You can't. Like priests, like people. I turn back one book to Ezra. Chapter seven, verse 10. And I, I wanna see how Ezra did this. And We'll, we'll, we'll turn back the clock 14 years earlier. Ezra first coming to the city. Ezra chapter 7 verse 10. Simple text with profound truth. And Ezra, for Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Here's Ezra, 14 years earlier, so consumed with the word of God. It didn't happen by accident that 14 years later, when the Israelites were in a place where they could have their hearts knit together with the word of God, it didn't happen by accident that that Ezra just got up one day and was speaking boldly the truth. God made the man for the moment and the moment for the man. Notice, first of all, in Ezra 7.10, it says that he set his heart. He was resolved, dedicated, determined, purposeful. He was settled in commitment. There was no equivocation. There was no wasting of time. He was a man about one thing, the word of God. Where are our hearts set? Where is your heart set? Secondly, it says, he set his heart to study, to examine deeply, to research it diligently. This kind of carries the idea, uh, I heard this from another man expounding the text, uh, of a minor who would search deeply under the earth for riches. And it carries the idea of, of Ezra digging out the truths of scripture, of God's word, and to understand it. This is exactly what Paul commanded Timothy to do in 2 Timothy two fifteen. Do your best, Timothy, to present yourself as God is one approved a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So he set his heart towards study. And yet this was not just an academic exercise. Consider what next is said in the verse. And to do it. His studying His hours and hours and hours of studying was not just to grow his head, but was to grow his affections and his actions towards obedience. He studied because he wanted to obey. He studied because he loved the Lord and wanted to please the Lord in his actions with his life. Ezra would only be successful to the degree that he himself was a living example of the word of God. He had to obey what he taught. Now this word translated to do. To do it. Or in some uh, translations to practice this carries the idea of, of expending tremendous energy in the attaining of a goal. In fact, if you want to look at another use of this word, the exact same word as to do or to practice, it's used in Genesis to explain the strenuous activity of Noah building the ark. And it carries the idea of here is Ezra alone in his study, alone with the scrolls unfolded before him, and he was building into his life diligently the word of God. Next, it all had a point to teach. It actually carries the, the idea here, carries the idea of, uh, the word here carries the idea of prodding to goad or prod. There's an edge to Ezra's ministry. Ezra was prodding his listeners towards repentance and prodding his listeners to faith and prodding his listeners to action. It it wasn't just a blah laying out of information. There was a point to it. There was a point to the truth. He, He was prodding the people towards the will of God they were to walk away from Ezra and the teaching more conformed to God. And James makes the point of this, that faith without works is dead. Ezra knew that in the Old Testament and he was pushing his people towards work because of faith. Turn back to Nehemiah chapter eight. And so, I would say, church, it all begins with you before the Lord. What is your own personal study life like? Are you like Ezra? Am I like Ezra? We must take this before the Lord for judgment. May God give us wisdom. Secondly, how to teach biblically, how to disciple biblically. Teach in a way to show your listeners their need for scripture. That's essential. Teach in a way to show your listeners or who you're discipling their need of scripture. Look what it says in verse 1. They gathered as one man in the square before the water gate. And they, the people, told Ezra, the scribe, to bring the book. This is coming from the people. It's coming from the pews or the chairs. Ezra doesn't have to do anything. Why? He's taught them now for a while. My friends, we must disciple in this way because the natural man does not seek after or desire God according to Romans chapter three, verse 11. We must disciple in this way because the natural man does not understand scripture or the importance of it according to 1 Corinthians chapter two, verse 14. And so I ask you, Parents, do your children cry out? Bring the book. Husbands, do your wives cry out? Bring the book, husband. My flock are the people you disciple, crying out to you: Bring the book. Oh, we need to because this this book is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It. it, it pierces down to the division of soul and spirit, both of joint and marrow, and it's able to, to discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. This book is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. What else can we bring them, but scripture? Such an importance and such a need needs to be placed on scripture. There needs to be such an urgency that you're bringing to your people over the sense of scripture. And you can just go on YouTube or do anything else and see if the ridiculousness that's happening in churches today, they're not crying out, bring the book. Now we can either follow in with that charade and bandwagon or we could take our stand and say, no, I'm gonna stand only on the word of God. I'm gonna trust and I'm gonna obey this. Here I stand, I can do no other. third third point teach in a way to uphold the authority of scripture our discipleship should uphold the authority of scripture continuing in, in verse 1 they were crying out to Ezra the scribe to bring the book Now look what it's described at. The book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded. The real issue here is the authority of scripture. Well, you see there is both a primary and a secondary author of scripture. Right here we we see that. Moses is the secondary author. He's the one whom God communicated these truths to. But the originator, the author of faith, the author of scripture is none other than God. A simple definition of the authority of scripture would go something like this. If I disobey or disbelieve scripture, I am disobeying or disbelieving God. That's stated in the negative. In the positive, it's saying if I'm obeying and trusting and living out scripture, then I'm obeying and trusting and believe what scripture says is coming from God and is God's word. People are in a good place. Bring the book. Why? I don't wanna hear from Moses, I wanna hear from God. Postman brings you a letter. You don't thank him too much when he delivers good news. He's just the one carrying the message. You thank the person who actually wrote the letter and gave you the good news. This is the greatest news. It is the gospel. Turn to Psalm one thirty eight verse two. It's valuable that we read this together, and I think oftentimes we don't give our Bibles as good as a workout as we should. We need to do it for ourselves or we become flabby. Well, no, our Bibles don't need to be that way. Psalm 138. I'll actually begin in verse 1 for context. A psalm of David. He says, I give thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Before the gods I sing your praise. I bow down towards your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Now here it is. For you, for you God, have exalted above all things your name and your word. The name of God is a representation of his character, who he is. Again, see a... result of that uh, or an example of that, you can turn back to to Exodus in your own time and research it where Moses was hid in the cleft of the rock and God was gonna go by and proclaim his name to Moses and show him his glory. What does he do? He, He passes by Moses and he proclaims his attributes. That's his name. We think of one another's name, we're thinking about the person, who they are, their attributes, what they're like. And yet, here is God saying on an equal plane is my name and my word. To honor the word is to honor the giver of the word. To dishonor the word is to dishonor God. To dishonor the word is to dishonor God's name. So I ask you, are the people we are teaching truly convinced that we believe the Bible is the word of God? Can they see how we handle scripture with the reverence that, man, God himself is speaking to me, I need to pay attention to this, this is important? Do they see us, as it said in in, in uh, Isaiah chapter 66, verse 2, 3, 4, and on, that You know, here's the one whom God will look at. Those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at his word. Can it be said of us that even those people who do not believe the Bible is the word of God nevertheless believe that we believe it is? An example of this would be George Whitfield and and, and his preaching and David Hume, the, the famous deist, Hume one time was traveling 20 miles to go hear Whitfield preach. A man confronts him. I thought, this guy asked Hume, I thought you don't believe a word that Whitfield preaches. Why are you going to see him? Hume responds, I don't believe him. But that man believes what he preaches. Can that be said of you and me? We are upholding the authority of scripture because when we do it, we uphold the authority of God. The church is to be a pillar and a buttress for the the truth. Turn back to Nehemiah chapter eight. And it brings us to our fourth point. We are to... Point number four, teach to the whole, not to the partial. Or to disciple to the whole, not to the partial. This is such an important thing, it's actually stated twice. I hope you caught it. Verse two, Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly. Here it is, both men and women, and all who could understand what they heard. Look down in verse 3. They preach from morning to midday in the presence of the men and the women and all who could understand. Both genders are represented, all ages are represented. Now, with a great degree of difficulty, I must therefore address something that's controversial. Scripture will not allow me to get out of it. I am the elder in charge of children's ministry, have oversight in that, and yet I long for the day when we will no longer have a need for children's ministry in the mornings because all the children will be right here among us for the preaching of the word. You look at it as a whole Sunday school for kids is a relatively new invention in the whole history of the church when you consider the the whole history. And so therefore I must ask you to consider are are, our children less bright than the children of Ezra's day? No. I hope not. I don't believe so. Are our children less trained in self discipline and listening skills than in Ezra's day? Yes, unfortunately. Parents, we are failing. Families are divided, even here yet this Sunday. Training your children now to be active listeners, don't you think that's going to bear fruit when they get to be adults? Instead of seeking churches that are so entertainment-based, if you teach them now to listen, to have self-control, they won't seek those entertainment-based or driven churches, but your adult children will be crying out, bring the book, pastor. Bring it. So much of our emphasis, I would say, even as a parent, is put in the stuff that really doesn't yield much. If self-control is a fruit of the Spirit, shouldn't you be prodding your children towards that? If they can't sit down and listen to a sermon for an hour, how are they going to sit down and listen to you when you have to give a long talk to them about important things? And I know what some are thinking. It's easy for me to say because I don't have kids. Yet I would say, hey, Paul wasn't married and yet he gives so much advice on marriage. The real issue is, is what I'm saying scriptural? When we disciple people, should we not disciple the whole family? Men, women, and children? When Paul discipled the Philippian jailer, According to what it says in Acts chapter 16, verses 32 through 33, he discipled his whole household. So husbands, I charge you in the presence of almighty God to sanctify your whole family with the word, your wife and your children, daily coming to teach the word of God to them. Oh, may it be that we would return to the times of old Back to the times when, after supper, the the father, the husband, would get out his, his family Bible and read from it and explain from the text to his whole family. I am not saying that that is easy. If it was easy, everyone would be doing it. We love easy things. Why do you think fast food restaurants are all over the place? It's easy to go get there. The things worth doing in life are hard. We honor people who do the hard things. We as Christians need to be doing the hard things. Point five, how to biblically disciple. We need to teach lengthy amounts from the scriptures. Look in Nehemiah 8 in verse three. He read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning to midday, from six to noon. Now, I want you to know that this this text is descriptive rather than prescriptive. Our teaching from the Bible does not need to go on for six hours. Praise the Lord. But consider this, length does denote importance. We work eight to ten hours a day. Why? Because it is important to provide for our families. Scripture makes a point of this. 1 Timothy 5, verse 8 he who does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. We work long hours because it is an issue of faith. It is important to us to provide. You sleep so many hours a day. Why? It's important to recharge, to be rested, to be at your best the next day. And so I ask you how long is your teaching with the people you disciple? How long is our teaching times with our families? Two minutes a day? Five minutes? You eat a daily bread with them? Ten? What if What would it say about you, parents, if you only prepared a meal and gave your kids five minutes to eat a day? What would it say about you, parents, if you only allowed your children to sleep five minutes a day? I tell you what, CPS would be all over you, wouldn't they? Yet, knowing the Bible is infinitely more important than sleeping. Sleeping will only affect this life, but our understanding of Scripture affects not just this life, but the life to come. Again, this is descriptive, not prescriptive. I don't think you go home and every day preach for six hours towards your kids. But I think we can do a whole lot better than five or ten minutes. I think we can do a whole lot better than after work spending five or ten minutes. I think we can do with those people who who we call up spending more than five or ten minutes with them. Turn it around. You're struggling, you're fighting against sin. Do you just want five minutes of a person's time, or do you want a person who's saying, I'll I'll be there for you as long as it takes? Come, let us open the scriptures. Don't get me wrong as I'm going through this and, and being somewhat forceful in it. Even saying this, we all have failed. Me too this has been beating me up for months now you might be feeling conviction over it that is good point number 6 as we pick up the pace teaching a way to command your listeners attention verse 3 again they read from it facing the square of the Watergate from early morning till midday in the presence of men and women and those who could understand and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. When Ezra read from the scriptures, the Hebrew word there for read is karah. It means to cry out. He was loud, forceful, passionate, He was there to proclaim a message from the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and his listeners needed to know that. Ezra demanded to be heard. Sometimes I don't think we get that when we read scripture. How many times does does Jesus say, behold, it means the same thing, pay attention. This is important. When we proclaim it, the word of God, when we disciple with the word, it should not be a lifeless reciting of scripture. But our whole hearts need to be burning with passion, with the truth of God's word, and we can't do anything but proclaim it passionately. Prophet Jeremiah knew about this. In Jeremiah chapter 20 verse nine, he says, there is in my heart, as it were, a burning fire shut up in my bones and I'm weary from holding God's word in and in fact, I cannot. What do the people we disciples see in us? Man or or woman so captivated with the word that we have to make it known. We demand their attention. May it be said about us that we are like Ezra in this way. Point seven. Teach the same doctrine as other Orthodox church leaders. Teach the same teachings, the same doctrine as other Orthodox church leaders. Look at verse 4. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood, we have a long list of names. These men stood beside Ezra to show the people their solidarity. What Ezra was proclaiming and teaching, they believed also. They stood by him, toe to toe. They were up there to lend aid to Ezra in the sense before all the people so that they would know this is the word of our Lord. We believe it too. Amen, amen. In a similar way, this should remind you of the day of Pentecost, should it not? Peter gets up to preach, and a lot of times we look over the simple facts, but the other 11 apostles stood right beside him. And Peter preaches what? The death, the resurrection of Christ, and that they needed to repent and trust in him. And they, all the other apostles were saying, Yes, we agree. This is the good news. This is the truth. Jesus is God. You killed our Messiah. Therefore, repent and believe and be forgiven. Let's just think about it logically. Parents, what do you think is going to happen if your children come here the church and hear one thing and then you teach them something different at home? How can they not be confused? I would, and I'm an adult. Would not differing theologies only reinforce in your child's mind that scripture is unclear? Who can understand it? Wouldn't it be a denial of the perspicuity of scripture? Perspicuity meaning clarity. So parents, I, I, I ask you, find a solid biblical church. Then echo the same teaching at home. So I, I will here charge you, my friends, We'll soon take a break from the book of Acts. We'll teach through the core doctrines of the faith. Parents, take these teachings. Teach them to others in your homes. Teach them to your neighbors. Teach them to your coworkers. Be a parrot for the word of God. Point eight. Teach in a way that promotes a reverence for the Lord. Notice what's happening here in verse five. The people stood up. Verse six, they bowed their heads. They lifted their hands up. They knew it was coming from heaven as the word was coming over them. We've all been guilty of not giving proper reverence to the word of God making some dumb jokes about it. Yet I think subconsciously that does point out our attitude towards scripture. I was even tempted in the way. You read through this long list of Hebrew names and there's all kinds of dumb jokes I could make. I don't make them now because I don't want to violate what is in here. I just ask you this, think about it. Those who we are discipling are either one or two camps. They're either either lost and they need the gospel or they're saved and they need the gospel to sanctify their life, to become more like Christ. So really it's about the gospel. Trusting in it for salvation or trusting in it and living it out in your daily life for sanctification. So my question to all of us is, what's funny about the death of Jesus? you're gonna make a joke about your savior who died for you? Don't get me wrong. We as Christians should be the most lighthearted. We should be joyful. We should crack jokes. We've been forgiven. We have a proper standing before God. But in our discipleship, in our teaching, we're not on a last comic standing. Should there not be a seriousness about the truth of God's word? I was thinking about this this morning. I've been for the last month or so shaving with a straight razor. Believe me, I was serious this morning when I was shaving. It wasn't a time to joke around or else, as Aaron has joked to me, he was afraid I would wake up or he would come to church. I wouldn't be here. He'd come and find me with my throat slit. I wasn't watching Seinfeld when I was shaving and laughing at George doing stupid things. There's a time for joking. Praise the Lord. When we get out the word, it's not a joke. Consider what, what what Moses put forward in Deuteronomy chapter 30, that listening and obeying the Bible is an issue of life or... of a blessing or a curse. We should take it in a similar way today. It still is life or death. Life if they turn from their sins and believe it and death if they don't. Living in the, the eternal life that, that we have as Christians if we, if we obey it or under the, the discipline of the Lord if we don't. I think sometimes in our humor we Communicate that the Bible is a joke. I am so guilty of this. Point nine. Teach with a primary focus to glorify God. That's our primary focus. That's it. Even the person you're discipling, it's not so much even about them. It's about God. Look at verse six. And Ezra blessed the Lord. Our teaching should be marked with blessing the Lord, giving glory to God. Every teaching time should seek to to raise God up in our listeners' minds, to raise God up in our minds to the highest level that we can even conceive and if possible, even beyond that. And as a consequence of doing that, it'll lower us, it'll humble us. And are we not guilty of this as well, all of us in here? How many times have we relegated the gospel to what Jesus can do for us? Jesus loves you, he died for your sins. Hey, amazing truth. True. How often do you hear it though proclaimed? Jesus died to glorify his Father. Did you not hear that today from Revelation or excuse me from Romans chapter 3? says that the sins of former times God overlooked, but now he is both the just and the justifier. That's what Jesus accomplished on the cross. People before the coming of Christ could look at God and say, look it, you're not just. How can you let all these evil people run around and and, and do all these wicked things and you don't judge them? You're unrighteous, God. How can you let these these people who say they believe in you act dumb and, and do all these crazy things? They're just as bad as some of the unbelievers. Then we see the cross. Sin was dealt with. Sin was punished and it absolves God of all, any fault of being unrighteous so that he could maintain his justice and be just and yet at the same time be the justifier of those who have faith. Where is that communicated in our gospel message? Is it truly about the glory of God or is it just having purpose and identity in Christ? Praise God for those things, but that is not the primary focus. It's about God. We benefit from the overflow of Jesus' love for the Father. And that's where we stand, absolved of our sin because. The father loves the son and the son loves the father. Point 10. Point number 10. Teach in a simple expositional way. Here's the nuts and bolts. Here's how we do it. You want a disciple, do it this way. This is prescriptive and descriptive. Look at what Ezra did in verse eight. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Three parts. I remember hearing a sermon by Al Mohler. Went through the same thing. He he likened it to, to shampooing. Lather, you rinse, Then if necessary, you repeat. It's simple. Read the text. Here's the authority. I'm going to read it. God's going to clearly speak. Explain the text secondly. You see this in there? Because they gave the sense. They're explaining it so that the people understood. Third, apply the text. It says that they understood what the text meant. They understood the command of the Lord and what the Lord implied to their daily lives. And to understand this, we need to understand the Hebrew way or view of knowledge or understanding. They they believed that somebody truly knew something or understood something when it changed their lives. Understanding and knowledge was linked to action. And so I think we know this inherently, but we don't think about it as we should. I know that it is wrong for me to walk out these doors and it's bad and go into the street right in front of a bus that's coming full speed. I know it's wrong and therefore I don't do it. Now, your parents with children who just run around and act crazy, they might repeat that hey, don't go into the street, don't go into the street, but how many times have you got to stop them? They haven't come to the knowledge part yet, truly understanding it. It hasn't affected their behaviors. Read the text, read it clearly. Read a large portion, explain it, then apply it. Give them something to do, something to walk away with. Point 11. Teach in a way that exposes your listeners' sins and their great need for repentance. There's far too many Pastors and teachers that don't want to call sin a sin. This is an epidemic as psychology is is reached into the church. The sin of drunkenness is now or the sin of becoming drunk is is a due to some gene. Or we blame it on the person's father. instead of understanding the sinfulness of sin. Notice what it says in verse nine. All the people wept. They were cut to the quick, cut to the heart. As Ezra was reading the book and explaining the book, people realized we have sinned before this good and gracious God. And again, I'll, I'll point back to the first one. It, uh, it begins with us. For we can take our, our listeners there, those we are discipling, it has to be true of our own heart. When was the last time you wept over your sin? When was the last time you cried out to anguish to the Lord? Have we calloused our hearts? We naturally don't want to deal with sin. We want to think of ourselves in the best possible light. And and let's just face it, it's this issue of, of selfishness that we don't address it with others. We think, well, we're so concerned what other people might think about us if we point out a sin in somebody else's life. And they might not like me, they might think I'm judgmental, they might think, And yet, and we all struggle with that, you know, guilty. Yet the real question is, what does the Lord think of us? What does the Lord think of our hearts? Why was David such a a man after God's own heart? And look at him weeping over his sin. Turning to repentance. Broken, contrite, trembling before God. Crying out, restore unto me, O Lord, the joy of my salvation. We must confront sin or else it makes no sense to promote a savior. He has to save us from something. Save us from his wrath in punishing our sin. Last point. Teach in a way that points to the path of forgiveness. I love it. People broken, weeping uncontrollably. All of them. I would think this would include the, the men, the women, and all those who could hear with understanding. The children. Then he said to them, Go your way, eat of the fat, drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Notice what it says, verse 12. All the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the word God that was declared to them. They were broken, contrite, repentant. The good news is God forgives those people who humble themselves under the mighty hand of God. God forgives the lowly God, God forgives those who come to him broken and by faith. And so we need to teach the person and work of Jesus Christ as, the, as faith alone in him, as him being our great redeemer, of him being the one who is powerful to save. That is the path of forgiveness. Simple trust in the work of Christ. These people went from weeping rejoicing. Why? They understood what the word of God said. They understood now their new position in Christ. They understood that they had been forgiven. Our weeping should just be for a time. When true repentance takes place there should be amazing joy. In a sense, we are to cut people with the word of God and reveal sin. We're also to sew them up. Make them whole. We're to point them to forgiveness and point them to Christ. So, as I don't have a conclusion written, what say you to these things? will you go on today and be the same? If I ask you on Monday, will you remember? Will you be resolved to be those who will biblically disciple other people and fulfill what God is commanding every single one of us here to do? May God Have mercy on us. May God give us grace to obey. And may we with with a renewed allegiance obey him out of love. Let's pray. (laughs) Father, I don't know what to say. It's like I almost came before the Ten Commandments here. I'm guilty of all of them. Guilty of all 12 of these points of of teaching and discipleship. I've not been perfect. And so, Lord, we confess our sin before you. We've not been the people that you've called us to be. Grant unto us, O Lord, a deeper repentance a more of a trusting in you. A more of an abiding in you. A more of a, 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 of a deep faith in you, Lord. For your own namesake. And as such, as, as we come to you and we pray this to you, Lord, we know that you are good and gracious and long-suffering, full of compassion and mercy for those who love you and keep your commandments. So we turn to you as the forgiving God. The God of compassion the God of grace. Restore our hearts. Renew our minds. Make us and teach us to walk in obedience to your word. For you are worthy. We ask this because ultimately we could come to you through our our great high priest, our intercessor, our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name I pray. Amen.